Hello and welcome to the Profits and Prana podcast. My name is Esme. I'm a yoga teacher, yoga marketing coach, and the founder of 42yogis.com. In today's episode, I'm talking with Amy Mewborn, who is a fitness entrepreneur with a background in finance. We get deep into what it means to be a business owner, some of the struggles that happen when you're running a small business, and she talks about why she started a bar studio instead of a Pilates studio when Pilates is where she was originally certified. We also talk about creating her own certification program for bar and challenges that come with growing a business. Something I really like about Amy is that she makes business decisions based on whether or not the numbers look good and are in her favor. I think there are a lot of really valuable insights in this episode for you, and I cannot wait for you to listen to it. Without further ado, let's get started. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, Amy. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So would you like to introduce yourself to our audience a little bit more? Sure. So I'm Amy Mewborn. I uh, spent 15 years in finance, uh, worked with some top companies here in the U.S., Ford, uh, Chuck E. Cheese, Venturi Wine Aerator. And in 2010, I just was feeling totally burnt out and needed to make a change. So I left a 15-year, six-figure finance career and opened a bar studio in Carlsbad, California. Less than eight months later, I opened my second studio, and I found that I kept getting the same phone calls from potential studio owners that wanted to open their own studios, and they wanted to know how. So I ended up creating a number of programs to help women become bar instructors, open studios, and then over the past year, I have expanded that to helping women grow and scale businesses in large part through using technology. And why bar exactly? Why not Zumba or something like that? So a couple things. Uh, First of all, um, in 2005, I found Pilates and completely fell in love with Pilates. But I'm still, to this day, I'm still a finance girl and everything has to make financial sense. And when I started looking around at what people were paying here in San Diego for Pilates, because the price had come down substantially, uh, it didn't seem like a really viable and profitable business model in the long term because you could only put so many people in a class and then the equipment was so expensive. So I kind of just let that go by the wayside, even though I loved it. It just was something that I was not really going to pursue from a business perspective. And then a number of years later, I was still in finance and I just was not happy. And it was showing in my body, it was showing in my mental health. And a girlfriend introduced me to bar and I just completely fell in love with the methodology, but also it did things for my body that nothing else had ever done. So I really started kind of looking around and I saw, kind of what was going on in the industry in terms of what people were paying for a class, how many people you could put into a class. And all of a sudden, it made a lot of financial sense. I love the methodology. It's safe, uh, much like yoga. You know, you really want really good instructors that have been well-trained and are super passionate about their craft. So it just was the perfect fit for me at the perfect time. 
I like that you made the decision also from a business standpoint. I think that's something a lot of fitness entrepreneurs miss. They just go all in on something that they really like. And then a year later, they're wondering why they have to close their studio down. Right. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that you and I have jobs is because (laughs) so often um, someone that comes into it just because they have a huge passion for fitness They maybe haven't thought through how much money they're going to need to make payroll or if they're going to do the largest majority of the work themselves. And if that's the case, how on earth are they ever going to still have a life? And, you know, so often I I talk to studio owners that have opened and all of a sudden they realize that they're working really, really, really hard, probably harder than they were back when they were in corporate America and maybe are becoming a little disillusioned with what it is versus what they thought it was going to be. So it's really important to understand the business aspect. I completely agree with that. And something that you mentioned really hits home with me about the amount of money that it takes, because I've talked to um, about eight studio owners this past year who had no startup financing and I just, I can't even imagine starting a brick and mortar business without at least a year of my expenses in the bank. Well, I always suggest at least six months because um, you're going to make some income, but it's really important to have a cash reserve for those months when things are slow. And also I really want to make sure that anytime someone reaches out to me that they're willing to put in the sweat equity. Because I always say, you know, the buck stops here, literally and figuratively. Once you're the owner, you are the person responsible for your staff. You're the person responsible for creating a great client experience. And you're the person that's responsible for making sure that your business is profitable. And if it isn't, you need to have enough money to get by the lean times so you can can make some hay when the sun's shining. Exactly. And traditionally, at least at least where I live, I live in a very small town. And in towns about this size, traditionally the summer is pretty slow because moms have a hard time with childcare. They have to take care of their kids who are not in school. And it can be difficult for yoga studios um, and Pilates studios to make it through the summer until you know kids go back to school and moms have more time they can come to class again. Absolutely. It's so important that in January and February and March, when you're having really great months, that you're setting aside some of that income to get you through. Because even here, I'm in, I'm in San Diego, which is a big market. And uh, I have a, a fairly affluent clientele. They do a lot of traveling in August and September. And so August tends to be one of our lightest months of the year. And I always have to make sure that we have extra capital set aside because otherwise August is one of those months that I don't care how many years we've been in business, we still never make payroll and rent and everything during the month of August based on just the income from that month. And we have six years experience. It's very important to understand your, your client's patterns and also the whatever's going on in the market around you. So for example, out here, there's a music festival going on at one of the universities. There's a classical music fest. So yoga tonight is canceled because okay. nobody's going to show up because there's a big right. free classical music concert. And I think something a lot of studio owners forget about 
is what is also going on in the community. So if you have a big festival going on, maybe there's um, a, a little league tournament or something that your clients are going to be involved in. It is going to be slower and you can't always count on people just being so obsessed with yoga. They're going to show up no matter what else is going on in the town. So as we're recording this, we came right off of July 4th holiday weekend and exactly that uh, we run, we ran one boot camp class on uh, July 4th morning and we did that for our members, our very best clients, and made it a 75-minute class. It was a lot of cardio, and the whole objective was burn as much as you could before you went out and ate for the holiday. We canceled every other class for the day, and then we canceled the 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning because after everyone was out partying on Monday night, what was the likelihood they were all going to be in class at 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning? So we figured let the instructor go out and have some fun too. And, you know, everyone could, we could see everyone at eight. So. I think that's a really good idea. I can't imagine getting up at six in the morning for a workout after having a really long night. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. No, uh, I actually belong to a gym here locally right by my house. And I will often make reservations for a class the next morning and about three o'clock in the morning, when I get up to go to the bathroom, I'm like, what's the likelihood that I'm really going to get up and make it to that class? And so I'm often canceling in the middle of the night. It's, it, yeah. So now something I wanted to, to touch on is you opened two studios within a year. What was that like on your quality of life outside of work? Because I can only imagine how stressful that time was for you. So I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it was... It was a great experience. I'm glad I did it, but it really did put a, it put a crimp on how much I could market the first studio at first because I was so busy building the second studio. And also when you're running two studios, for me, uh, that I, I have a staff of 25 at that time. And that's a lot when you're launching one, you're running one. And we actually had an all-inclusive vacation booked to go to um, Puerto Verde, Mexico, Mexico. And it was booked for about probably three months prior to the opening of the second studio. But we were literally in the middle of finalizing our lease, starting construction, getting all the permits. And so it was non-refundable and we had to lose it. And, wow. you know, that's a painful, painful thing. I mean, people don't, I think, always realize that being a business owner, there are certainly some sacrifices that we make. And they have a lot of great freedoms and flexibilities, but we, there are a lot of sacrifices that go into the work to have those things. I completely agree with that. And it's it's not just sleep, which I think is the first thing people think of. <laughs> <laughs> sleep, eating, mm -hmm. you know, there are some days that I get so busy that it's three or three thirty in the afternoon. All I've had is my morning cup of coffee and I am so hungry. It's like I'm a bear and I'm going to just pounce on someone. <laughs> so I've gotten better about at least keeping like little cherry tomatoes with hummus or something around so that way when I'm starving 
I can go and literally grab something within seconds. That's so. a really good idea. So, and I keep a mini fridge in my office uh-huh. for that reason. Cause I, sometimes I get so into it. I don't even stop for water. So I always make sure I've got water around and it can be really challenging. I think when you get into a groove. Sure. You sit down at the computer and you know, you're, you're seeing success and you feel like, Hey, great. I'm actually making progress. And the last thing you want to do is interrupt that flow. Exactly. Now, I was reading in your bio that you created a certification program. Was that a business decision or was that just because you saw a need in the market? And it it may be, I think a lot of times when people create certification programs, at least in, in the yoga world, it's not entirely profitable, but they do it because they're trying to fill a need for their students. So I did it to fill a need for my studios. So I we created the program in large part just because I wanted to have a customized and systematized training system for my own instructors. And I wanted to be able to control the education that they were getting to bring into the studio. Uh, then what I found is that there's, there's a tremendous need for affordable certifications. Uh, so yes, often there is. When I did my first Pilates certification, it was $4,000. And it was like 500, 800 hours. And very few uh, instructors can really afford to pay for that and then make their money back in a fairly reasonable amount of time. Yes. Yeah. I see that all the time in the yoga world. And we've got trainings that um, they're, you know, 2,500. I've seen some all the way up to 10,000, $12,000. And it can take years to make that back, especially if you're just showing up at a studio teaching for an hour and then you don't teach again for a few days. Exactly. And that's just it is, I mean, physically, I try to encourage my own instructors to not teach any more than normally nine classes a week because it takes a toll on your body. And I always tell our clients, if you ever notice when an instructor walks into a class, they're often the first ones doing the modifications because we're so busy teaching so often that a lot of our joints and our bodies are taking a beating So when we come in as clients, we very much enjoy having the ability to just kind of go at our own pace and protect our knees, our hip flexors, our, you know, elbows, shoulders, any number of things. Exactly. Um, About, gosh, how many, 18 months ago. Wow. I pulled my uh, Papalidius tendon. Oh my God. And for about a year, I was doing every modification in yoga class that I could possibly do because my knee was just not thrilled. But I have, you have to keep working it or you lose even more mobility. So once that mobility. scar tissue yep. builds up. So I see that all the time. And that my personal teacher here a few years ago, she did something to her knee. And so anytime we went into pigeon pose, she would do the easiest modification that she could come up with. As an instructor, I feel like I do a lot of demoing, but um, I, I will normally set up an exercise and then I want to go and walk the room 
and make corrections. And so as such, I tend to use one side, my dominant side, to always do demoing. And then that one little hip flexor will start to cry after a week or two of really significant use. It's like, hello, you're doing all this little demoing, but you're not taking the time to stretch with everyone at the end of class. And those are the things that as instructors, we often don't think about until we start to notice it manifesting itself in our bodies. So, so true. Now, um, what I was going to, to mention is you said that you suggest your, your teachers only teach about nine classes a week. How long are those classes? So our classes are 55 to 60 okay. minutes. So any time in there. Okay. So a lot of um, classes in, in the yoga world are just like all over the map. And we've got 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for a lot of teachers in, in yoga, um, it's a specific amount of hours that your body is really capable of. And I find if you can, you know, maybe do an hour, two hours of teaching a day, that's probably going to be your limit. And whether you're doing, you know, four classes with, you know, a total of two hours, or you're just doing one class or maybe two classes, I think once you hit that limit, your body really starts to feel it. So for us, I always try to bring an instructor in to teach two or three classes at a time. And three, three is hard. Two is kind of perfect. If you teach two, you walk out and as an instructor, you're often a little bit energized and you're kind of ready to go and do the next thing. By the end of teaching that third one, what I think people don't understand about their fitness instructors is that literally you're entertaining for two or three hours and you're talking, you're providing modifications, you're providing amplifications, you're walking around, you're making hands-on corrections, you're trying to crack a joke to keep everyone engaged, you know, or any other number of things. And literally your mind and your mouth, they are working for two or three hours straight. And I walk out some some days after teaching three classes or if I teach four, I might as well go home and crawl right into bed. I'm done. Yes, it's very difficult for, uh, for non-extroverts, I think. So and wherever you fall on that introvert <laughs> spectrum, I think it can be really challenging to keep that up. Because I know a lot of extroverts who find that really energizing. They love it and they could do it all day long. But I think once you realize maybe you have more introverted tendencies, it's, just, it's so difficult to keep up that pace. Yes. Well, I... I was surprised as I've gotten older what the real definition of introvert versus extrovert is because I would never have considered myself to be shy at all, which is what I kind of always had associated introversion with. And then when I heard that the actual definition of an introvert was someone that was not energized by lots of activity that they're actually energized by quiet time at home or alone I'm like that's totally me so you know it's really funny that uh, for me as much as I love teaching at the end of two or three classes I'm toast so that might be why you're the business owner instead of the primary teacher absolutely absolutely now you've been in business for six and a half years now is that correct yeah. 
So I, I just can't even imagine having two physical locations for that long. What, what sort of challenges did you have in the beginning that, that maybe made it difficult for you to really think that you were going to get to this point? Uh, first of all, the biggest challenge I think on an ongoing basis as a business owner is staffing because every person that you ever hire for your business is a representation of you and the brand of that business. So I always tell uh, potential studio owners and the people that I hire, I hire based on personality. Do I like you? Um, Do I feel like you would treat my clients with love and respect? Uh, Are you someone that I would invite over to my home to open a great bottle of wine on a Friday night? Because I can teach someone to be a better instructor, but I can't teach someone to be a better person. I have said pretty much the same thing. I used to manage a coffee shop and I used to have that thought all the time. So I can teach you how to make coffee. I can't teach you how to be a nice person. Exactly. And, you know, if you're the person that runs the business or manages the business or owns the business, you're not there all the time. And it's really important to know that the people that are there are treating your your customers that you've worked really hard to get like they matter. And if, um, you know, if you... If an instructor doesn't value a client's time, if they don't pay attention to that client and try to offer great modifications if the client is struggling, you know, all those things, you really have to have a heart to make it a great experience for every person that walks through the door. And if you don't have that, then you're probably not going to be a great staff person in the fitness world. I completely agree. And further, I think it's a lot harder to teach certain people the value of being a heart-centered staffer because some people, they, they seem really nice. They seem like they get it, but in practice, they don't. And you sure. can just drive people away. You know, when a client leaves a studio, they don't normally tell you why they're leaving. Mm-hmm. And unless there's a big blow up or something significant that happens that the staff knows about it, often if a client is unhappy with your service, they just quietly go away. And, you know, that's, that's tough when you feel like you've done everything possible to create a great environment and then some of your longtime or best clients leave and... You know, I've had to reach out to clients in the past via phone or email and just say, hey, I noticed that you stopped coming or I noticed that you canceled your membership. Is there something that I should know? You know, is there something that happened that you'd like to tell me about? And it won't go any farther than right here. But the best way for us to improve is to know about the client experience and you know, what in particular made it where you didn't want to come back. And yet, as a studio owner can be one of the best things and one of the worst things for you. Because one, if someone has a bad experience, you're going to talk about it pretty quickly because they're going to go and they're going to yelp you and you're going to get the opportunity to either reach out and make it right or not. 
But I will say that where it's a bad thing is that sometimes we have people that come into the studio and they're like, well, you better do this. Otherwise, I'm going to give you a bad Yelp review. And as a studio owner, you're kind of like, okay, so am I going to get held hostage by every person that always wants something special just for them? So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a catch-22. It is. And you just reminded me of the South Park episode about Yelp. So okay. my stepfather watched it and he sent it to me. I don't watch South Park. And the whole episode was this town being taken over by people who, well, you better give me free stuff or I'm going to leave you a bad review on Yelp. And it is such a problem, not just in, in restaurants, but also in any service business. And we're giving people power to be heard, which I think is a really good thing and very useful in this consumer economy that we have. But it also empowers people who are less than ethical to really take sure. advantage of certain business owners in certain situations. Well, we've used Groupon as a major way to bring first-time clients into our studio. And so all of our Groupon promotions are always at a significant deep discount but they always specify that they are for first time clients only. And we don't make exceptions on it because it's not fair to the person that's paying regular price for someone else to go and be able to buy five Groupons. So that's, I, that's the thing that I can tell you we hear the most where someone's like, well, why can't I just go and buy, buy my packages directly on Groupon? And what the client doesn't understand is let's just say that we put a five pack, which this is our real scenario. If I have a five pack of classes, that's normally $110 and we discounted on Groupon to $49. And that's just about a little over 50%. Then Groupon takes 50%. So that means if it was $50, we got $25. So for your five classes, we were paid $5 a class. And ultimately, there's no way that on those margins, we're able to run a business that way. And so what the client doesn't understand is that their favorite studio is going to disappear because they're not going to be profitable and they're not going to be able to run their business. And I think what you said about profit margins is a really good point because so often, when people do these social deals, they don't realize that every class that you sell at a steep discount is literally eating into your profit margin for the month. And if you're trying to do things like figure out payroll and know your overhead for the month, and you're doing all of these classes at such a steep discount, it takes a really serious effect on your ability to you know, make your rent and keep the lights on. And so often when studio owners don't know the numbers, they get sucked into this idea of, oh, we're just going to bring in more customers, but they don't understand the value of those customers is going to be drastically different from the customers they already have. Yes. Well, I mean, we're starting to see it now in retail and they're talking about how as buyers, as consumers in America nowadays, if I go to the shopping mall, I'm looking for a great discount in Banana Republic or White House Black Market and that unless there's a big sale, we're not buying. And 
the reason is that when we hit that downturn in the economy in 2008, stores had to discount in order to move products. And it's this total catch-22 in every single business that you run. If you start to discount your services, then you set the expectation that your customers are always looking for a discount and they're not going to pay your regular prices. Exactly. And in my online business for the first year, I didn't, I didn't have anything to sell. I was just sort of like making, making lead magnets and, you know, doing a little free webinars and giving them away because I didn't know what my audience wanted. And so almost all of the, the subscribers I had at that point are no longer with me because as soon as I started having things for sale, they went away, which is fine. I mean, it, it, they were never going to buy from me in the first place. But I think we don't always realize that we create this community of people who either expect to get stuff for free or they appreciate that if they want something of value, they are going to have to put up some money for it. Absolutely. I mean, literally, we train people how to treat us. And if, if we set ourselves up as the low cost provider, they're going to treat us like the low cost provider. So that's always something that you want every instructor, every studio owner, everyone to always remember that if you're going in as an instructor to uh, pitch yourself to a potential studio owner, you don't necessarily want to be the most expensive, but you certainly don't want to be the least expensive. And same thing as a studio. You may not want to be the most expensive unless you're going to provide a premier service, but you certainly don't want to be the low cost provider because as soon as you're the low cost provider, then everyone feels like you're selling on price and you become a commodity. Yeah. And it's really hard to keep up that any sort of momentum that you've built when all you're trying to do is increase your customer base and sell on volume. Which, you know, when you're selling purely based on price and not on value, that is really your only option. Yes. Now, you mentioned uh, you started Bar because it was more profitable than Pilates. What sort of difference are we talking here? So I've taken a couple Bar classes, but they were taught by a friend who had just become certified. So I never, I never paid for them. I was like her, her guinea pig student. Sure. So uh, a Pilates class out here in San Diego, uh, nowadays we have club Pilates. I don't know if you guys have that out by you, but it is actually group Pilates classes where you can get, you can be one of eight people on a reformer and you're paying between 10 and $15 a class. Okay. So let's just say it's 10 then that means that that studio owner is making $80 for that class. And the instructor is probably making somewhere in that 40-ish range. So half of the total revenue, if the class is full, is going to the instructor and the other half is staying in the house. So then when you consider what it costs to build the studio out, to buy all the equipment, what it's costing on a monthly basis for rent, and then what you're getting at the end of the month, there's nothing left. I'm sorry, but I cannot run the numbers anyway and figure out how to make it work. With 
bar, the reason it made financial sense to me is because if you're buying a class pack, most class packs are between 10 and $15 per class. There's no equipment other than some mats, some playground balls, a bar, and um, like some little hand weights. So you have no real huge startup costs, no big maintenance, and I can put 20 to 25 people in a class. So let's just say they're paying that same exact $10 a class, then we're talking $200 a class versus $80 a class. If you're paying that instructor $40 again, then you're talking $160 left over to pay the rent and all the other stuff. So from a numbers standpoint, it made so much more sense. So I totally understand that. So I didn't realize um, exactly how expensive the Pilates equipment is, but if you think about it, it makes sense. And it's not small. You, you can't fit a lot of it in, into one room. No. So a one of my studios is 800 square feet just in the studio space. Wow. And I I've lived in houses put, smaller. Yeah. Well, that's so in our studio, we have two studios side by side. We have a reception area, okay. bathroom, everything else. But one studio is 800 square feet. And you could probably fit, I would say, eight reformers in there comfortably. Each reformer is anywhere between $4,000 and $8,000. Wow. I had no idea. So how long would it take to make that money back? Mm -hmm. That's incredible. When did you start training your teachers? When did you start your certification process? So first of all, I believe that if you're going to open a studio, you need to get your instructors trained before you open. Um, it's really important that you open with a almost full staff, I believe. Um, otherwise, you're going to find that when you should be marketing and building your business, you're instead going to be teaching, and that may not be the highest and best use of your time when you're launching a new business. So I can definitely say that we started certifying our instructors a few months prior to opening. Oh, wow. But we made it formal um, where, I mean, at this point now, my certification is completely different than when we first started. I have a 200-page manual we make every instructor go through and do teacher training on site with us. Um, we have video where they have a members portal where they can watch every single exercise and break it down. We have videos of full classes where they can see how you meld all the exercises together so a class flows. So, I mean, there's just there's so many different things that you have to consider when you're building a certification program, um, when you first start, you don't need all of that. It's just that as you go on and you grow, you'll find that you want your programming to grow with you. Well, and I'm sure the members portal is very useful because it removes a little bit of your one-on-one -on -one time with your students because there's only so much of that to go around. 
And when you can make some of the training home-based and more automated where they can do it at their own time, they get the emails without your involvement, I think it gives a lot more space for you to help more people become certified and to train more teachers. I don't care what business you're in. I always tell every business owner to sit down and write down the questions that they're asked over and over and over again. And they need to create automated systems for those questions. So that way they're not having to have those one-on-one conversations over and over and over again. I don't care if you're an insurance agent, if you're a real estate agent, I don't care what your business is. There are a number of things that are the frequently asked questions. And so if you can go and create a video on it and talk to a camera and be as personal, personable and personal as you can be and give great content, you're going to really set yourself apart with your clients in your expertise. Well, and aside from just making it easier for you, I think you're also raising the bar a little bit because I think it, it looks more professional. It looks like you're more serious about what it is you're doing because people see a video and they know it took you time and it took you set up. Yes. Maybe you had to hire a video editor and I think it helps you look a little bit more serious. Yes, completely. Anything that you can do to set yourself apart from your competition just goes to show how seriously you take your business. Now, something about yours that really stood out to me is, um, if I'm remembering correctly, your certification is accredited, isn't it? Yes. Like, so, so you can train your teachers and they don't just have to come work for you. They can work at, at other gyms. They can go get jobs pretty much, it looks like, anywhere in the country. And when I was reading that, I was like, I haven't seen that in the fitness space. And most yoga teachers, you know, they go, they get their yoga certifications. Sometimes it's Yoga Alliance, sometimes it's not. And they don't get any other credentials. So if you walk into a gym and you just have your little certification, some gyms don't recognize Yoga Alliance. Mm -hmm. And so then what do you do? How do you prove that you know what you're doing? And I love that your program allows people the diversity of choice you know they don't just have to stay in their local community and teach only where they have a reputation I really like that that really stood out when I was reading about your material when I was reading your material I think it's so important when I did my uh, first Pilates certification we had uh, we have the Pilates method alliance so much like yoga alliance but that is the recognized body of Pilates So anywhere you went with a Pilates certification that was a PMA certification, it was recognized. And that was really important to me with BAR because BAR doesn't have a certifying body. They don't have anything like that. So what I wanted to do was find a way to have someone look over our program and kind of give us a third party endorsement that it was a solid program and that someone would be well educated by the end. And so that was the reason that we submitted it to the American Council on Exercise is that is one of the primary group fitness certification bodies. So we really wanted to make sure that someone felt good about what they were buying. 
And have you noticed that it made a difference in how many people sign up for your programs? Without a doubt. Uh, people are dying for third-party verification. I mean, whenever, today, uh, there was a, a deal for Webinar Ninja on AppSumo. I, I got that the other day. I love it. And so there you go. You know, for $49, you could go and get this webinar program. It was $49, but everyone has been all over Facebook for the past weekend saying, so has anyone purchased this? Have you tried it? How is it? You know, everyone. It's amazing. Yay. And everyone's looking to see someone that says, yeah, I've tried it. I've used it. It's good. It's worth the money. Because Mm -hmm. we're all working hard for every penny we're making right now. And people want to know that before they put out their money, that they're investing it in something that's great. Yes, yes, exactly. And I'd been spending so much time looking at all these other webinar solutions. And it was about two or three months ago when I finally settled on Webinar Ninja, but I just hadn't gotten to that point yet. And I'm still yeah. not at the point where I'm going to be doing webinars right now. That's a September project. But I jumped on the, on the AppSumo deal. Yeah. $49. I mean, that's crazy. So for life. And you, you can't beat that. Yeah. No. So I, I like what you're saying about third-party verification. I think that's really important. And I think that is something that is sort of a blessing and also a curse about Yoga Alliance. Because people generally, when you're new to yoga, you are like, oh, Yoga Alliance, and you you immediately trust it. And then sometimes the more you learn about how they actually verify the trainings, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't for me, but then what do you do? So and right. I think when the material is backed up by another source instead of just Yoga Alliance, I think it does lend automatically more credibility. And I sure. love what you're saying about the American Council on Exercise is like going through and verifying, yes, people will be educated because that's something that's really missing in the fitness world. So and we're trying to be independent and progressive, but as a result, people can get seriously injured from someone who only has a basic 200 hour training and they didn't show up for half the classes, but they still got the certificate. So it, it's a really difficult situation to be in. Yeah. I I completely agree. I mean, it's so important. You know, when I was in finance, I always said I was dealing with people's most precious asset, their money. And I totally believed that. But what I have learned as I'm now doing this is I, you know, now you're actually dealing with people's bodies and their health and their wellness. And, you know, I'm often telling clients just because you think you can do more doesn't necessarily mean you should because you know if you mess up your knees or you mess up your hips or any other number of things when they repair them they're never ever ever the same and you know it's just it's so important that as instructors we're well educated and that we take the time to hear our clients and give them the best we can give them. I totally agree with that. And if you're not trained properly to begin with, how do you know if you're giving someone good advice, bad advice? You don't. And there's really no way to know other than education and experience. Sure. So a couple things I wanted to touch on before we start to wrap up, because I think we've been on for about 45 minutes already. 
Wow. Uh, I know. Uh, So a couple standard questions. Do you listen to podcasts currently? I can't say that I'm a huge, huge podcast listener. Um, For me, I don't spend a lot of time in the car. Um, I have purposefully scheduled my life where I do not get in my car unless I can get somewhere quickly. Uh, That's, I think, one of the big benefits of being an entrepreneur. Um, But I will say that when I am listening, I really love Amy Porterfield's podcast. Um, She's fabulous. I think she's just, she's so down to earth. And she's great about teaching things in a way that are simple and actionable, which I think is so important. Um, Yes. I also love Hillary Hendershot's Profit Boss. And it's one of the newer ones on the scene, but hers is primarily for women business owners that want to really transform their life through wealth. And her, one of her goals is to have, I think she said, I I probably shouldn't speak for her, but uh, basically it's women and financial independence. And that is one of my huge passions because when I was in finance, I felt very firmly that a lot of times I was dealing with the very, very wealthy men, the the patriarchs of the family. And often the matriarchs had never been really brought into the financial decisions. And then 80% of the time, the guy dies first. And so that means that the women were left with this very large baton that they had never really been trained on how to how to take it and, and make their family successful. So those are probably the two that I would say when I am downloading, they're the ones that I go to. So I love that because um, my great grandmother, uh, she outlived her husband. He made all the financial decisions. And when he passed away, she was completely disempowered. And she mm-hmm. had absolutely no control. Her finances were in shambles. And so I really have been very passionate about that. And when I started taking money more seriously, because that's not something that I think any woman should have to go through. And so often it's just a lack of education. So we, we aren't taught about money as early in life as men seem to be. Well, and women seem to be embarrassed to talk about money. You know, it's, it's almost like we've been programmed or told, oh, well, we don't ask those questions. We don't talk about those things in public. And men, they get out on the golf course and they're just shooting the breeze about what's going on in their business and what's going on in their family finances and everything. And we just, we just don't do that. And it's a shame because I think that if we were a little more open about those things, that we would all be more successful financially. I completely agree. And Speaking about success, is there a business book that has been really helpful for you? Oh, gosh, I love to read. I'm I'm just an avid, avid reader. I loved the book Rework just because it is all about simplifying your business and not necessarily about investing loads of money and um, trying to grow bigger than you need to be when you're first starting out. I love Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, the uh, founder of Zappos. 
Um, they talk a lot about how they invest their marketing dollars into their customer service and that that's actually how they've grown their business, which I think is tremendous. And then right now I am reading the 12 week year and it's all about uh, breaking down your year into 90 day increments and setting shorter term goals. So that way you have shorter feedback loops and opportunities to kind of reevaluate where you are in your business goals. So that's exactly what I do. I used to plan out a whole year at a time. And then a few months in, I'd be like, wait, this isn't going the way I thought it would be going. Right. So I actually, I drew up a little, um, a little day planner template where I just, I have my whole my whole uh, season. I, I work yep. with seasons mostly. Um, so I'm going to have to definitely check that out. That sounds right up my alley. Lots of good resources here. Um, I'm going to link to all of those in the show notes. And Love it. last but not least, what is one thing that you wish you had done earlier in your business that would have increased your profitability without being a scammy salesman? So I believe that every business owner should have a mastermind group of other people. They don't have to be the same industry or anything like that, but other people in a similar business place as them. Because I think it is so important that as solopreneurs, often when we're first starting, that we have that informal board of directors that we can talk to and run ideas by. I'm also a huge, huge advocate of a business coach, but I don't think that necessarily everyone has the budget for that right away. Or even if they do, I don't know that a lot of people would believe that that's that important. And I believe that you can get a lot of great help and assistance with a really good mastermind group um, without the cost. And I think having people to bounce things off of can be so useful. I and mean, I don't, in my day-to-day real-life interactions, I don't have that. I mean, I talk about my business with my husband, and I'm not sure he understands. So it's really helpful to surround yourself with people who get what you're going through every day and get what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Well, it's amazing, too. My husband always jokes that literally he can tell me something 20 times, and it's like it's in one ear and out the other. And my mastermind group mentions it one time and I'll come and I'm like, so they had the greatest idea. And he's like, you crazy girl. Did you, do you not remember all the times I've been telling you that? And often, yes, I do, but it really kind of gets under his skin now. So it's just kind of a, a game that we play, but yeah, you know, a lot of times your spouse, they're too close. They're in your day to day. And they can't really always be an objective third party. And also, if we're sitting down talking about maybe how I'm going to spend business resources and the conversation comes up and he's like, well, you know, if you don't buy that or you don't do that, would that money be available to our lifestyle? And, you know, sometimes it's worth it to reinvest in yourself and your business. Yes. Yeah. Some of the best business decisions I've made in the last year have been investments. Mm -hmm. Without the tools, without the technology, you are very quickly going to limit yourself 
yes. with your business growth. And it can be simple things, just like software to help you with your Twitter, for example. Yeah. But being willing to see your business as something that is worthy of your money to help it get to the next level is something a lot of people seem to struggle with, but can make a really big difference. I also am a huge advocate of when you start to feel too busy, it's time to start looking at a VA because chances are you're spending a lot of your time in $10 an hour tasks that if you instead outsourced those to someone else, you could really be focusing on growing your business. Completely agree with that. VAs are life changing. And the oh next thing I'm going to invest in, the next next human I'm going to invest in is a maid. <laughs> so just Love come it. over once a week, you know, do all of the deep cleaning that I am just not going to do because it's a quality of life issue. And I could do it, but that, that two or three hour block would be better spent working in my business. And there's just so many things like that that we're surrounded by. I mean, do I really have to be the one folding my laundry? Not really. Well, I think a lot of that is, again, potentially how we were raised. Because for me, my parents kind of always put in the back of my mind, why would you hire someone to do something when you can do it perfectly fine yourself? And mm -hmm. what I had to learn as an entrepreneur is that just because I can doesn't mean it's the best use of my time. Yes, exactly. I and mean, we only have so much time as much as I wish it were different. I mean, I could go for another 12 hours a day. I wish I had a 36 hour day, but I don't. It's right. just the reality of life. And, you know, mopping the floor, not the best use of my time. <laughs> right. So this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find more information about you? So you can go to amymewborn.com and that's A-M-Y, M as in Mary, E-W, B as in boy, O-R-N as in Nancy.com. And if you go to forward slash free, then we have some free resources where you can get some checklists and things like that to grow your business. Awesome. So I'm going to link up to that in the show notes as well. So that will all be over at 42yogis.com slash podcast. So thank you so much for doing this. This has been All a right. pleasure. Me too. Talk to you soon.